Thanks to all that led in the worship this morning, and our children, second grade and under, may leave for Children's Church. My thanks to Vance for speaking last Sunday morning. I appreciate his <clears throat> his willingness and his capability bringing a message on uh, a very uh, obscure passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, but uh, it's nonetheless the Word of God, and we need to pay attention to it and to to heed that particular word. So we have for, I guess since the 1st of December now, been looking at the cradle and the cross, a series of messages primarily focused on forgiveness or how the Lord and his salvation work moved to save us. We, it is something that we, um, and I must admit I do it myself, we consider or we take for granted. We ask for forgiveness of sins and and uh, the Lord grants the forgiveness of our sins, and we, uh, we move on in life. But obviously there was quite a bit more that God himself expended in himself and Jesus Christ to bring us to a point to where we could be forgiven. A couple of Sundays ago, we focused on justification, <clears throat> and I might reminded you that without justification, we are not forgiven of our sins. And this morning, we're going to focus on reconciliation, and without reconciliation, we're not forgiven of our sins. So these words, and that's what we've been focused on, four specific words, these words are not only important words, they are words in action that provide to us forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to mix in uh, Ephesians this morning. Because forgiveness not only is extended to us individually, but as an individual, we are to forgive others. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, when Peter said, how often should I forgive my, my brother or my enemy? Seven times? And Jesus said, oh no, Peter, 70 times seven, which is a completed understanding of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 1, let's go there first. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we've looked at this passage, <clears throat> I think, every single week. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, deliver us from our sins. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to teach us how to live better, although that's part and parcel of being born again. He came to save us from our sins. Ephesians, you ever ask that question? Why did Jesus come? To save you and I from our sins. Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Uh, 
Let's look at verse 30 and we'll read through the remainder of the chapter. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now I'm reading from the New King James, the Pew Bibles are ESV, and uh, many of you have the ESV. Slight differences, but still we need to focus on what the Lord says. And go to, again, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Salvation from our sins... Is the pen, are the words, mightier than the sword? Let's pray. Father, bless the word. It is the only agency in this mortal life that you have elevated to bless. Teach us this morning so that we might become like your son, Christ in us the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we began a few weeks ago asking the question, why did God choose words to communicate to men and women, boys and girls? We are the crown of his creation. Why did he choose words? First slide. Thank you, brother. Uh, let's see. Let's go up a slide. Go back. Go back a slide. I'm sorry. Go back a slide. Yeah. That's part of it, but I think we've got one before that, if not two before that. <clears throat> yes. So we've, for a couple of weeks now, we've focused on the fact that God created in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, A and E, Adam and Eve, with statement of intent. In fact, Adam and Eve were the only two that he had a specific purpose for creating. It doesn't mean that everything else was arbitrary, it just means that everything prior to that was created for the crown of his creation, for you and I. Who we are and our purpose was not voiced by Adam. God was the one that explained to Adam, this is why I made you, this is what I intend for you to do. We don't make up what God intends for us to do. God does. Adam and Eve understood initially that they were the Imago Dei. They were made in the image of God. And Genesis 1.26 speaks to that. I've 
preached and taught a number of times about it. I'm not going to go into detail about what that means, but essentially, we can capsulize it and say the equal and absolute dignity of the human person as the image of God. No other created being, animal, vegetable, fish, whatever, had this intent. So that makes you and I vitally different. It also makes us highly responsible. Adam and Eve fell to the serpent's seduction and yielded to his temptation. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Sin's potency, and sin is the most most potent disease that we deal with. Sin's potency seized their minds so that its appeal and subsequent consequences have reigned supreme in the Imago Dei since the fall. They and we succumb to sin's three distinct elements of seduction and three distinct elements of devastation, which began in Eden. And they are suspicion. Well, I'm not a suspicious person. I would beg to differ with you. Obviously you are. The very first thing that they were tempted to do is to suspect and be suspicious of God. So there's a temptation to be suspicious of God, and then there is this, this, by implication, a deep suspicion of others. And we all share this. Everything outside of us is a threat to our freedom. It's a threat to who we are. It's a threat to all of the different nuances that we have in our life. Everything outside of us, sometimes our spouses, sometimes our children, sometimes the preacher, sometimes the government, everything outside of us is a threat to us. And look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said? Suspect. Suspicion. Secondly, there is the temptation in this particular chapter, to strive to be as God. And the appeal, one of sin's great appeals is the fact that there we can be like God. That's what the serpent said. Look, if you would, at verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, 
Everyone wants to be like God. In fact, the greatest idol and temptation we have is ourselves. It's the appeal of such a rich prize to be God, to be like God, for such a small risk. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Next slide. Suspicion, wanting to be like God. Genesis, Exodus, the New Testament are very much the history of men that posture themselves as God. Women too, for that matter, but primarily men. From Nimrod in Genesis to Pharaoh in Exodus, from some contemporaries or older contemporaries, from Rousseau to Karl Marx, from Caesars to Nietzsche. And Nietzsche claimed if there were God, how could I not stand to be a God? And this is very prevalent in our world today. Yuval Harari, who is a professor at the University of Jerusalem, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he is an atheist wrote a book entitled Homo Deus, The Human as God. Augustine wrote a book 1,600 years ago entitled Deus Homo, God as Man. So he specifically chose this title as an affront to Augustine, who's been dead for 1,600 years and been with the Lord for 1,600 years. And he said this in this particular book. We are the gods of planet Earth. We're the new godlings. Scientists today can do much better than the Old Testament God. No wonder we heard so much about following the science, and you'll continue to hear that, although no one can define that, because words are emotional. Os Guinness wrote, when humans try to be more than human, they end up less than human. Look at Genesis 3. They left the intent of purpose that God created them to be. The third thing, the temptation to shift responsibility. I mentioned at the outset of the message here that because we are the Imago Dei, because we are in the image of God, because we are the crown of creation, there is tremendous responsibility that's placed on us. And sin motivates the believer, uh, the, the uh, sinner. Sin motivates sinners, and sometimes it motivates sinning believers to shift the blame. We want to become the victim. We want to deny. We want to confuse. We want to... Uh, refuse to accept responsibility for any action that I deem, again, comes back to, that I deem that's going to pose a threat to my autonomy. 
Look at verse 12. Genesis 3, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me. Hey, God, if I can't be God, you're not God either. You're responsible for my sin. Now, this is one of the most arrogant statements that's ever been made. And so, anything that poses a threat to my independence requires me to shift my responsibility to someone else. So these three elements, the temptation that we have to be suspicious of God and others, the temptation to strive to be like God, although we obviously can, and the temptation to shift responsibility. These are three of sin's distinct elements of seduction which are still with us today. And so something needs to be done about these. Now look at chapter 4. Look across the page to chapter 4. This is the story of Cain and Abel. So Cain's born and then Eve bears uh, Abel. Verse 2 says, Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was, Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so the process of time, they brought offerings. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock, verse 4. And the Lord uh, uh, respected Abel in his offering. He did not respect Cain in his offering. Again, the, the Imago Dei is answerable to God. Okay? So, there was disrespect of what Cain did. Now, notice this number three, the shifting responsibility. Notice how Cain handles this. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, if you follow your brother's lead, Suspicion. Abel's sacrifice can't be any better than mine. Suspicion. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. Its potency will control you. but you should rule over it. Now, Cain talked with Abel, okay? Some time takes place, and he was angry. came to pass when they were in the field. Cain rose up against Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Very similar to what took place in Genesis 3. And so Cain lies, shifting responsibility. I don't know where he is. You're God. You ought to know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that is, yes, we are. Because we have a responsibility to each other. Not to be suspicious, but to be supportive. Not suspicious, supportive. So, Cain murdered Abel and then lied to God, shifting responsibility. 
God sought him. God doesn't leave sinners alone. God sought him. And he would have forgiven Cain had he but asked him. <laughs> and he didn't. God moved to conciliate, uh, con conciliate rather, or act as a peacemaker, a mediator for Cain. But Cain refused. So, this is a story of mankind. God has acted as a peacemaker, and yet the vast, overwhelming majority of people refuse. Next slide. So, we began this series by examining why God forgives. And what it cost him to forgive. Forgiveness is a restoration of peace with God. It doesn't occur without reconciliation. It doesn't occur without justification. It does not occur without propitiation. And it does not occur without redemption. God moved to contact Adam and Eve and Cain. While there, Adam and Eve trying to hide, and Cain trying to lie his way out of murdering his brother. But the peace that God secured for us is never cheap. It's always costly, and then we've used this verse a number of weeks as well. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Matthew 1, Jesus came to save. God gave us to us in a word, Jesus. Ephesians 4, we are to forgive because God in Christ forgave us. Matthew 18, which I alluded to a few moments ago, is the teaching of Jesus to Peter. Peter, hey, seven times is not enough to forgive your brother. Because being human, we become suspicious, and then we become legalist. I have forgiven him 489 times. One more time, he's off my list. That's not what Jesus is teaching. And we do not have the irresponsibility of not forgiving anyone. It is irresponsible. How shall we escape if we neglect the work that Jesus has done for us? Hebrews 2.3. And God is no less essential and inescapable when he's rejected like Cain or Adam and Eve who were restored through the sacrifice that God made for them. But he's no less essential and inescapable when rejected as when he is believed. So our rejection just brings down his wrath upon us. 
which he moved to remove in Jesus Christ. So forgiveness, satisfaction, substitution lead to salvation from our sins. There are four words that we've been looking at. Next slide, Brother Jeff. A few weeks ago, we looked at propitiation. Propitiation stresses the wrath of God upon sinners. It's our punishment placed on Christ. Second is redemption, our captivity to sin, our purchase. It required a purchase in Jesus Christ. Third, justification, our legal guilt before God, our pardon found in Jesus Christ. And this morning, reconciliation, our enmity against God, and our alienation from him. You just look at Cain, go all the way through the book of Genesis. We studied it, and now we're going through the book of Exodus. We, we know this. We know these things, but we avoid them. Our position that's been restored because of Jesus Christ and the peace that we have with God again because of God the Son. These principles, and they are important words, and they are necessary words, but they don't flatter us. They expose the magnitude of our need. We need a Savior to bear the wrath of God. We need a Savior to redeem us from our captivity to sin. We need a Savior to justify us before God. And we need a Savior so that we might be reconciled back to Him. So reconciliation, we look at it this way. If propitiation focuses on God's wrath being satisfied in the cross. That's one of the words that we've looked at. Satisfied in the cross. If redemption focuses on the plight of sinners from which the cross ransomed them, this is the negative aspect of salvation that requires Christ's blood, and justification focuses on the positive attribute that there is for the believer not for unsaved sinners, but for saved sinners, focuses on the positive attribute of no condemnation in Jesus Christ, then reconciliation, and again, necessary for forgiveness, restores our relationship to and our peace with God and each other We are reconciled to God, and as we will see, we are to be reconciled to each other because of the previous three words. Next slide. So, a little deeper definition of reconciliation. We, talk, we preached about, a little bit about this about a month ago. In fact, on Christmas Day. We talked about this, and we'll go back to some passages here in just a moment. While I'm reading this, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Reconciliation, then, is a restoration or to restore our relationship to the Trinity. It means to renew a friendship. We were friends of God at one point in time. 
Adam and Eve were. They lost that. They were restored back because of the act of God. And you and I today, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I can assure you God's desire is to restore you back to friendship with Him. And we don't want to be enemies of God. We want to be friends of God. It begins with the gospel. Sang a beautiful gospel opening this morning. Saw a course about the gospel. We, it begins with the gospel writing our relationship to God. And it continues with us being reconciled in his community of saints. The church was reconciled as well. Not just me as an individual, the church corporately reconciled as well. It also means that, as we'll see here in the book of Romans, let's, let's read verses 9 through 11 here in chapter 5. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, again, we don't want to be enemies. So Paul says, Pastor, when we were enemies, which means that all sinners were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. One of the reasons for the ministries of Jesus Christ in the three and a half years, or actually in the 30-some years that he was on, on the earth is to provide to us an understanding of how the second Adam, how man and men and women should live as the Imago Dei. We can look to Jesus. This is how a man and a woman should live, like Jesus. Now we know we can't. So there's this void that can only be filled by the Savior. He says, verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation, atonement, our partners, they go together. When Christ atoned for our sins, we were reconciled back to his Father. Atonement makes reconciliation possible. Without the death of Christ, no reconciliation. God and mankind, as this passage says, were for if when we were enemies, God and mankind were alienated from one another. All you have to do is look at Genesis. Adam and Eve came, and many others that followed. We are now made at one again. We are at peace with God. Now, this is believers, those that know Jesus Christ as Savior. It also means that we have been adopted. We have been brought into God's family. Not everyone on the face of the earth is a child of God. Everyone on the face of the earth bears the image of God. But not everyone on the face of the earth is a child of God. Everyone that has repented of their sins, called out to Jesus, received him as Lord and Savior, is a child of God. And because of that, we are now part and parcel of the church. 
the larger universal church, but primarily made up of those that have been born again, followed the Lord in, uh, in obedience and believers' baptism, and been accepted into the body of local believers. Not to sit at home when you have other things to do. On the Lord's day, we should be in the Lord's house. And we, as he said, that were once alienated, now have access to him, to God. It's an active community, communion, rather. It's not passive. It's active. And the active communion is extended to us primarily through two means of grace, prayer and the word. Two, not one. Well, I love to pray, but I have a hard time reading. Well, I love to read, but I have a hard time praying. Two, they're compliments they complement each other. They are necessary. We are motivated to pray because of the Word. And we're motivated through the Word by our prayers. This is the church. Reconciliation is horizontal. Christ died to remove the suspension, the suspicion. It's horizontal as well as vertical. Somehow, we have taken the marvelous work of God and His Son in salvation, and we have distorted it to the point to where we think we can live about any way we desire to live on this earth and claim the name of Jesus and not have any inward or outward expression of being born again. That's not what salvation is about. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> horizontal, vertical. Paul stresses here the Gentiles. That's you and I. We take for granted sometimes that we've been exposed to the gospel. But the gospel went first to the Jewish people. And the Gentiles were brought in, and that's what Paul is speaking. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a, what a hopeless situation that is, that was. But, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you, that word far off means over the horizon. No one could see you. Some of you are beach people. 
Oh, you go to the beach and you lay on the beach. And you got your glasses on, you got your hats on, you got your suntans on, you know, not suntan, but sunscreen on. And you get the waves are lapping up at your feet. It's a wonderful time, is it not? All God's people said? That's mighty weak. Because I know some of you are beach people. And you look out at the horizon. You look out at the ocean. And far as you can see, there's nothing on the horizon. So you go back to reading or you go back to sleeping or snacking or whatever. Talking. And just a few minutes later, you raise your eyes and you look, and there on the horizon is a ship. Now, the ship did not appear by some miracle. It breached the apex of the horizon. And you saw it. Paul said, you were below the horizon. And now God favorably has looked on you in Jesus Christ. And you have been brought near. You have been reestablished as friends with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we ask for forgiveness, remember that we as Gentiles were below the horizon. And God brought us near in Jesus Christ. We were alienated from God. And because we were alienated from God, we were also alienated from the covenants of God with Israel. Next slide, if you would, brother. Notice what he says. Christ, our peace has been made for he himself, verse 14, is our peace, who has made both alienations. God, commonwealth of Israel, one. These are the principles that God brought together in Jesus Christ. So we have received a double reconciliation. We have been reconciled back to God, and we have been brought into the fellowship of Old Testament Israel because of the covenants that Jesus kept. Look over at Ephesians 3. Look at verses 4 through 6. How that, well, look at verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles, the ones below the horizon, you and I, should be fellow heirs of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me for the, by the effective working of his power. Brought together, reconciled back to God, 
and reconciled to covenants that God did. God, when God made a covenant, when he made the covenant with Abraham, when he made the covenant with Moses, when he made the new covenant in Jeremiah, these covenants have never been broken. God makes a covenant, it's not broken. The two previously unreconcilable enemies of Israel and the Gentiles were brought together in peace. Turn over just a couple of pages, Colossians chapter 1. One of the great <clears throat> hymns in Paul's writing, talking about Christ. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. You remember we talked about not having no idols, and one of the reasons that we are to have no idols is because God has no image. No idols because I'm God, I'm spirit, I have no image. You can't make an image of me. I have no image. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in, in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. One of the great uh, understandings of who Christ is. For it pleased the Father, verse 19, that in him all the fullness should dwell, the fullness of God, and by him to reconcile, to make peace with all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, Gentiles, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he's made peace with. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are, not, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you've heard, which was preached. Preached. To every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. So there's another component to reconciliation and that's what we see here in this particular passage the entire universe. We are told in the book of Romans that when Adam and Eve fell, it brought chaos into the structure of God. Now, it's still under the physical laws of God, thankfully. But there was chaos because of sin. When all of the great telescopes and satellites look out into the expanse of the universe, and they 
witness all these explosions and black holes and gaseous nebula and so forth, that is a result of sin that poured through after the fall. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. God propitiates, he redeems, he justifies the sinners. He also reconciles what he created to be enjoyed by you and I. As beautiful as this world is, and it is, it's still falling. Still falling. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. I'm going to finish, let's see, I'll finish probably this and then we'll close this morning. I'll finish the rest of it next week. Colossians 2, 11. In him you were also circumcised, covenant made with Abraham. In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The shedding of blood by Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant that God made in Genesis 17 with Abraham, that of circumcision. What God establishes as a covenant, he completes. He fulfills. Buried with him in baptism. A couple of weeks we're going to celebrate believers' baptism. Buried with him in baptism. The symbology of dying to self, being buried, and then resurrected in Jesus Christ in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive, he's resurrected, he's reconciled, he's brought peace back to you and I. Having forgiven you, We don't think of this passage when we talk about forgiveness, but Paul did. Having forgiven you of all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's disarmed principalities and powers. He made it a public spectacle of them, and he triumphed triumphed over them. This Jesus did in fulfilling what we think is a, an ins, inconsequential covenant, the covenant of circumcision made with Abraham. What a God. Some of us pride, pride ourselves on, on being perfectionists, making sure we got everything. We would have missed this. But God didn't. In the circumcision of the blood of Jesus Christ. Three covenants will close. Genesis 17, we'll not go back there. We've been talking about it. The covenant of circumcision, which we just looked at here.
Colossians chapter 2. Paul writing to a church that was primarily Gentiles. And perhaps somebody had written back to him and said, well, what about the covenant that God made with Abraham? He said, listen, don't worry. That's under the blood of Jesus Christ. God didn't forget. He's not forgotten you. You were below the horizon. Now he looks, he sees you, he knows you, he saved you. He makes peace with you. The covenant and the circumcision was the right of Israel. And Christ achieved it through his bloody death for you and I. Jeremiah 31 and 31 is the new covenant where God says, I'm, I'm going to create in my people a new heart. Their heart is far from me. They are not going to return to me. I'm going to do that work. Just as he moved to challenge Adam and Eve and just as he moved to, to question Cain and would have forgiven Cain, God makes that move. The new covenant achieved by his violent death and glorious resurrection changed our spiritual deadness to new life because he gives us a new heart. Next slide and with this we'll close. Exodus 20. The law, the Mosaic Covenant. God has never removed the Mosaic Covenant. We are no longer under the curse of the law because of what Jesus did. But the covenant still exists. He achieved... He, being Christ, he achieved by his perfect life and his sacrificial death. He nailed the coldness of the law. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The law is cold. There's no grace in the law. There's no mercy in the law. There's no kindness. There's no forgiveness. But Christ took that covenant that God gave to the Hebrew people and to the world in general. He nailed the coldness of the law to the cross, as Paul said here, by wiping out, by blotting out our sins. I've got reference 1 Chronicles 29. We're not going to go there this morning. I may open with that next Sunday morning. But here's the, here's the story. God told David, through the prophet Nathan, because you've been a man of war, because you've been a man of blood, because you sinned greatly, and Israel has seen your sin, because you murdered one that bore the image of me. I'm not going to allow you to build a temple. Your son Solomon will build the temple. But Nathan also told him, you're free essentially to gather all the materials for the temple. You just can't build it. And so David did. He set about to gather the materials to build the temple. In 1 Chronicles 29, 4, it tells us that, Moses, uh, excuse me, that David went out and procured 
3,000 talents of gold. Now, we're Americans, so we like dollars. Let's put it in a dollar, an understanding of how that relates to dollars. The metaphor here reminds us of the blood of Christ, which we looked at in 1 Peter 1 and verse 18, that is more precious than 3,000 gold talents or about $7 billion. Just in gold alone that David procured to overlay the holy of holy walls. This is how precious blood of Christ is in bringing peace between God and man. Do you have peace this morning? Are you at peace with God? If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, I can assure you, you are not at peace with God. You may be a young man, young woman. You may be an older man, older woman. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. If you've never confessed your sins before the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have not acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, you bear the wrath of God upon you. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. If you're here today as a child of God, and I hope and trust all of you are, that you know the Lord Jesus as Savior. That wrath was placed on Jesus Christ. It has been removed from us. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. However, we are to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Are you harboring unforgiveness in your heart and soul this morning? We're not to be selective. Ernie, this is difficult. Yes, and again, amen. It is. But this is the teaching of God's Word. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the Word. We thank you for these passages that teach us that the covenants that you made thousands of years ago that you still honor and Christ fulfilled with his death on, on Calvary. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you that reconciliation is not only vertical with you, it's horizontal within the church of God. And so my prayer is this morning that you'd move in this congregation, move in my life, to bring us to a point to where we understand forgiveness as taught in the Bible. And that when we pray, that we are reminded about these great things. 
In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. I think I mentioned to you that a lot of the notes uh, are on this series have been taken from John Stott's book on the cross of Christ, which I highly recommend. Not an easy read, but it's a great read. And, and um, he writes in a chapter on salvation, he says, God finished the work of reconciliation at the cross. Yet, sinners still have a responsibility to repent. They have a responsibility to believe in order to be reconciled back to God. Again, sinners need to be reconciled to God, and yet we must not forget that on God's side, the work of reconciliation has already been done. If these two things are kept distinct, they will also, in all authentic gospel preachings, be kept together. It's not enough to expand to expound, rather, a thoroughly orthodox doctrine of reconciliation if we never beg people to come to Christ. Nor is it right for a sermon to consist of uh, an interminable appeal that has not been preceded by the exposition of the gospel. The rule should be that there's no appeal without proclamation and no proclamation without and appeal. So yes, God reconciled, but because we are made in the image of God, we have the responsibility to respond. So this morning, we're going to sing one verse of a hymn, if the Lord spoken to your heart, and you do not know the Lord's, uh, Lord Jesus as your Savior, then we can't save you, but Jesus can, and He will. He loves you. He shed his blood in order that you might be redeemed and forgiven. As we sing, if you'll make your way out of the pew, we can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here under the peace of God in Jesus Christ. If you're here today as a child of God and you may be uh, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church, you know the Lord as Savior, perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to, uh, likewise to call out to him today and unite with us here at Flat Creek. As a child of God, these, these commands, and that's what they are, these commands are not negotiable. They are compelling. They are meant to be compelling. It shows us how desperate we have a need that can only be filled in Jesus Christ. What number, Brother Mike? 272. 272. If the Lord's spoken, won't you come as we stand and sing?